Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 11, chapter 1. Book 11, Cruising. This year has... Can you believe we're at book 11 of this year? (laughs) Four months left of 2021. I saw a meme the other day. It was like me trying to process 2020. Me realizing that 2022 is four months away. Like, what happened to 2021? It just kind of blinked and you missed it. Um, anyway, here we are, book 11, chapter 1. Tolstoy writes this chapter about how historians view this time period with about 50 or 60 years of hindsight. As someone with over 200 years hindsight, do you agree with him? Do you think historians are still Napoleon-centric, perhaps to a fault? Do we focus too much on leaders? Interesting question. And it's interesting to remember as we read these things, these chapters, and these little rants of Tolstoy's about history, that it was historical to him. It seems like it was all kind of, you know, from the 1800s. He wrote a book about the 1800s in the 1800s, but there's about 50 years separating when these events happened and him writing about them. And it's recent enough that it will be assumed common knowledge. You know, there's no spoilers if you sort of already know what happens to Napoleon and what happens to Russia in this time. If you already know about the Napoleonic Wars, there's no spoilers really because it was written at a time when Tolstoy would assume that you know that. Um, But now, 200 years later, a few people probably don't. I didn't before I read War and Peace for the first time. Kara Kikar says, I don't know that much about the philosophy of history. I did sign up for the class, but the professor seemed intense, so I dropped it. Wow. However, I think a lot of dialogue has been happening that challenges the great man. Excuse me. That challenges the great man view of history. Lots of effort has been spent to understand the impact of others, especially women or marginalized people, who might have been erased from history. I've posted this before, but watching news cycles plays play out on Twitter and then in the official record of mainstream media, I think our generation has lived experience with how the official narrative can be simplified. Evidence tells us that the mouthpiece of a message or idea is rarely the originator of it. It is easy to attribute something to one person, but I think we should understand Napoleon to be the structure of power that buzzes around him and not the man himself. Yeah, right. Good way to think of it. You know, he is a... What is he? He's a source of engagement with the world almost like a news station. You attach yourself to this news station, you can get your message out, you can control the narrative, and there's so much attention paid to Napoleon everywhere he goes, everything he says, that he is like a beacon to to amplify those that buzz around him. So kind of makes sense, doesn't it, in a weird way? Um, one second... All right, we need to read more of this book. I feel like we haven't really started book 11 yet because chapter one was just one of those kind of Tolstoy specialty things, you know, the the warm-up chapter where we don't really actually check in with any characters. It's just a bit of a reflection. 
So, let's go. Chapter 2 goes like this. The forces of a dozen European nations burst into Russia. The Russian army and people avoided a collision till Sm- Smolensk was reached, and again from Smolensk to Borodino. The French army pushed on to Moscow. Its goal, its impetus, ever increasing as it neared its aim, just as the velocity of a falling body increases as it approaches Earth. Behind it were 700 miles of hunger-stricken hostile country. Ahead were a few dozen miles separating it from its goal. Every soldier in Napoleon's army felt this and the invasion moved on by its own momentum. The more the Russian army retreated, the more fiercely a spirit of hatred of the enemy flared up, and while it retreated, the army increased and consolidated. At Borodino, a collision took place. Neither army was broken up, but the Russian army retreated immediately after the collision, as inevitably as a ball recoils after colliding with another having a greater momentum, and with equal inevitability, the ball of invasion that had advanced with such momentum rolled on for some distance, though the collision had deprived it of all its force. Sorry, excuse me a second. Uh, just arranging something on my screen here. Uh, the Russians retreated 80 miles to beyond Moscow, and the French reached Moscow and there came to a standstill. For five weeks after that, there was not a single battle. The French did not move. As a bleeding, mortally wounded animal licks its wounds, they remained inert in Moscow for five weeks, and then suddenly, with no fresh reason, fled back. They made a dash for the Kaluga Road, and after a victory for a Malo Yaroslavets, the field of conflict again remained theirs. Without undertaking a single serious battle, they fled still more rapidly back to Smolensk, beyond Smolensk, beyond the Borezina, beyond Vilna, and farther still. On the evening of the 26th of August, Kutuzov and the whole Russian army were convinced that the Battle of Borodino was a victory. Kutuzov reported so to the Emperor. He gave orders to prepare for a fresh conflict to finish the enemy, and did this not to deceive anyone, but because he knew that the enemy was beaten, as everyone who had taken part in the battle knew it. But all that evening and next day, reports came in, one after another, of unheard of losses, of the loss of half the army, and a fresh battle proved physically impossible. It was impossible to give battle before information had been collected, the wounded gathered in, the supplies of ammunition replenished, the slain reckoned up, new officers appointed to replace those who had been killed. And before the men had had food and sleep, and meanwhile, the very next morning after the battle, the French army advanced of itself upon the Russians, carried forward by the force of its own momentum, now seemingly increased in inverse proportion to the square of the distance from its aim. Kutuzov, Kutuzov's wish was to attack next day, and the whole army desired to do so. But to make an attack, the wish to do so is not sufficient. There must also be a possibility of doing it. And that possibility did not exist. It was impossible not to retreat a day's march, and then in the same way it was impossible not to retreat another and a third day's march. And at last, 
On the 1st of September, when the army drew near Moscow, despite the strength of the feeling that had arisen in all the ranks, the force of circumstances compelled it to retire beyond Moscow, and the troops retired one more last day's march and abandoned Moscow to the enemy. For people accustomed to think that plans of campaign and battles are made by generals, as any one of us sitting over a map in his study may imagine, how he would have arranged things in this or that battle, the questions present present themselves. Why did Kutuzov during the retreat not do this or that? Why did he not take up a position before reaching Fili? Why did he not retire at once by the Kaluga road, abandoning Moscow, and so on? People accustomed to think in that way forget, or do not know, the inevitable conditions which always limit the activities of any commander-in-chief. The activity of a commander-in-chief does not at all resemble the activity we imagine to ourselves when we sit at ease in our studies examining some campaign on the map. <coughs> With a certain number of troops on this and that side in a certain known locality and begin our plans from some given moment. A commander-in-chief is never dealing with the beginning of any event, the position from which we always contemplate it. The commander-in-chief is always in the midst of a series of shifting events, and so he never can at any moment consider the whole import of an event that is occurring. Moment by moment, the event is imperceptibly shaping itself, and at every moment of this continuous, uninterrupted shaping of events, the commander-in-chief is in the midst of a most complex play of intrigues, worries, contingencies, authorities, projects, councils, threats, and deceptions, and is continually obliged to reply to innumerable questions addressed to him, which constantly conflict with one another. Learned military authorities quite seriously tell us that Kutuzov should have moved his army to the Kaluga Road long before reaching Philly, and that somebody actually submitted such a proposal to him. But a commander-in-chief, especially at a different moment, as always before him, not one proposal, but dozens simultaneously, and all these proposals, based on strategics and tactics, contradict each other. A commander-in-chief's business, it would seem, is simply to choose one of these projects, but even that he cannot do. Events and time do not wait. For instance, on the 28th, it is suggested to him to cross to the Kaluga Road, but... Just then, an adjutant gallops up from Milorodovich, asking whether he is to engage the French or retire. An order must be given at him at once that instant, and the order to retreat carries us past the turn to Kaluga Road. And after the adjutant comes the commissary general asking whether where the stores are to be taken, and the chief of the hospitals asks where the wounded are to go, and a courier from Petersburg brings a letter from the Sovereign which does not admit of the possibility of abandoning Moscow, and the Commander-in-Chief's rival, the man who is undermining him, and there are always not merely one but several such, present a new project diametrically opposed to that of turning to the Kaluga Road. And the Commander-in-Chief himself needs sleep and refreshment to maintain his energy, and a respectable general who has been overlooked in the distribution of rewards, comes to complain, and the inhabitants of the district pray to be defended, and an officer sent to inspect the locality comes 
and gives the report quite contrary to what was said by the officer previously sent. And a spy, a prisoner, and a general who have been on reconnaissance all describe the position of the enemy's army differently. People accustomed to misunderstand or to forget these inevitable conditions of a commander-in-chief's actions describe to us, for instance, the position of the army at Philly to assume that the commander-in-chief could, on the 1st of September, quite freely decide whether to abandon Moscow or defend it. Whereas with the Russian army less than four miles from Moscow, no such question existed. When had that army been settled? At Drissa and at Smolensk, and most palpably of all, on the 24th of August at Shevardino, and on the 26th at Borodino, and each day and hour and minute of the retreat from Borodino to Philly. Alright, there we go. Another chapter. Still haven't checked in with our characters, but I guess we're uh, just contemplating the, asp- the, the, the nature of history. Alright, guys, thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.